invite you to attend the January 2023 Nomad Offshore Summit here in Lisbon, Portugal. This podcast channel is about you, successful international entrepreneurs, successful expats, successful investors, sponsored by ECJ Contacts. All right, so to those who may be joining us live and to those who are watching this video because it is being recorded, welcome to HCJ.tax, where we talk about all things international tax. We try to demystify the sometimes confusing world of cross-border uh, compliance and tax planning. If you've not joined us before, you can have a look at hg.tax forward slash events because we do these live streams almost every week. And we try to publish a video every day on YouTube as well as wherever you find your favorite uh, podcast. So whichever podcast platform you use, chances are we publish there as well. We have over 2,000 videos on our YouTube channel. We have uh, no over 1,000 videos, sorry, and over 2,000 articles on our website, hg.tax. So today we have the honor and privilege of having another conversation with the illustrious barrister, Mikhail Charles. Mikhail, please introduce yourself to those who may not already know you. You'd have to unmute yourself because you're on mute. Darren, thank you. And um, good morning, good evening, um, wherever you are. Um, and to all our followers, I, I do know that our whenever we speak about matters caribbean offshore slash uk there are usually a flurry of questions and i hope that um, we can get the discussion um, kicked off so my name is michael charles um, i'm a barrister um, practicing out of three bold court chambers in the jurisdiction of england and wales um, but i'm also admitted and practicing in most of the Eastern Caribbean, and that's defined as nine member states and territories. I am admitted in and practicing in Grenada, St. Vincent and the Grenadines, St. Lucia, St. Kitts and Nevis, also known as St. Christopher and Nevis, and the British Virgin Islands. Um, I also am associated with a firm, a leading firm in Antigua and Barbuda, as well as um, the Turks and Caicos Islands and um, some sole practitioners out of the Cayman Islands. Um, all of that to say is that um, I'm interested in solutions, uh, which is why I continually um, hang out and do some great work uh, with htj.tax. Uh, <laughs> today, uh, we will be speaking, the, the, the topic for today is the treatment of crypto or NFTs or as we would term it, crypto assets um, across the Eastern Caribbean and the Cayman Islands. But I think first, um, to sort of set the set the temperature or set the tone for today, we need to understand why um, crypto assets, what they are, why they're important in society, and uh, how they're currently being treated or the regulatory responses. Um, so... I think over the past three years or so, crypto has uh, further exploded. Um, I mean, 
thinking back to June 2020, there were well over 5,500 types of crypto assets and um, more than 270 crypto um, asset exchanges available online. Now, in almost a, a Faustian way, um, the amount of crypto assets double or change almost every year. Um, and this is us going back as far as January 2008 with the launch of uh, Bitcoin. Um, and they are the most popular um, type of crypto out there. And they do hold, and Bitcoin holding majority of global market shares. Um, but why regulate? And uh, you, when we talk about regulation, what does that mean? Now, because digital assets are increasingly important in modern society, they're used for an expanding um, variety of purposes. And that could be payment, um, to be represent or to be linked to other rights or things, um, something like crypto um, electronic signatures, cryptography, smart contracts, distributed ledgers and associated technology, they've broadened the way that digital assets can be created, accessed and used. Now, the clash between digital assets and the law comes in how it is to be treated. Is it property? Is it not? Is it something else? And I think that's the strength of the Caribbean or the Commonwealth Caribbean jurisdictions that base their legal systems on English law because it has been held to be property or at least to have the indicia or features of property. Um, just rounding that thought off, the Law Commission in, let me get my dates correct, the Law Commission earlier this, well, earlier last year, but keep forgetting in 2023, uh, the Law Commission earlier in 2022, in July of 2022, they put out a digital assets consultation paper. And that paper built on the work of the UK Judicial Task Force, which put out a very influential statement as to um, the status of crypto assets. Now, why regulate? Now, the need for regula regulation is based on the use of crypto assets to transfer value. And one of the old illustrations of how to launder money using gold is you have a piece of gold. Um, you say it's valued like $1 but then you take it to another jurisdiction and really cash out $100. I know that's a very broad example, but it's something similar to that. Crypto is worth as much as it's worth because of the people who ascribe value to it. And because that value um, can fluctuate in a volatile way, um, it, and because it's decentralized, um, there, there's so much potential for misuse um, and for, for re very real financial and other types of harm um, to be inflicted on companies and individuals. Um, the failure of crypto assets and criminal prosecutions surrounding FTX, which I think has been the most prolific um, thing to happen in the past, maybe 
six weeks or so um, to crypto um, reinforces the need for um, active regulation. Now, FTX is an Antiguan company that is regulated in the Bahamas, but its, um, its liquidation is being administered in the US. So I'll, immediately you see at least three jurisdictions. And when you look at the court filings, there are well over a hundred different companies associated with FTX spread across um, the world. Um, so FTX, oh. Mount Cox. Sorry, just we, yep. That's that's an important. Obviously, that that is a really high profile uh, scenario. I mean, it's not the first one, but perhaps it's perhaps the the company that in in the crypto space that has had the most far reaching impact in terms of the number of people that have been uh, inconvenient right. in some way, shape, or form or impacted. Right, but the the thing is that the Caribbean, as you pointed out started down the road towards regulation even before that. So yes. my, my question is, so was there a, a particular incident that triggered uh, this desire to regulate? Why not just leave it as is? Um, I, I think looking back to, to the context of AML, CFT, so anti-money laundering, countering the financing of terrorism, um, regulatory issues surrounding the offshore space, um, stretching back into the late 1990s and that round of blacklisting from the OECD. Um, OECD spilling over to FATF, spilling over to the EU, but coming back to the FATF in particular. Now the FATF um, started recognizing um, the potential for the misuse of crypto assets you, with the use of offshore structures. And I think they, they sort of use the tax transparency initiatives um, to sort of springboard um, the need for regulation um, onto Caribbean governments. Um, so there's an FATF recommendation 15 out of a report that they did on crypto, um, which suggests that uh, regulation, or at least regulation by registration, um, should be mandated in Caribbean countries that um, have that are popular offshore centers um, whose structures are used in the crypto space. Um, so I, I think that was the impetus. Um, and it only came to the fore maybe about 2018 or so. And then we start seeing legislative responses um, in the Cayman Islands in 2020, um, with their Cayman Virtual Asset Service Providers Act, um, which gives a, a framework for the registration of um, virtual asset service providers and it also makes a series of consequential amendments to the anti-money laundering and countering of the financing of terrorism um, legislation to provide a comprehensive framework for the registration of virtual asset service providers, the types of um, the types of crypto assets or virtual assets, and they use the term virtual assets very broadly because of the different types of crypto assets that can be deployed 
um, as a result of that. Um, so, so just just stepping back to the FATF guidance for a little bit. Now, the name of that publication or the name of that set of guidance was the guidance for risk-based approach to virtual assets and virtual asset service providers. And that's recommendation 15. So under the rubric, new technologies, um, and it deals with the international standards on combating money laundering and the financing of terrorism and proliferation. So that recommendation, as well as the FATF guidance, um, was heavily, heavily, heavily pushed um, across the offshore world. And as a result of that, as we stated before, 2020, you see Cayman bringing in their law. Um, then we see the Eastern Caribbean Central Bank or the ECCB commissioning a consultant to make draft reg regulation or draft legislation called the Virtual Assets Act, which is very similar, if not materially identical in most part to the Cayman Act. And that purports to be a model piece of legislation across the nine, well, no, seven member states um, of the Eastern Caribbean Currency Union. So you're talking from Anguilla in the north, even though it's an overseas territory of Britain, to Grenada in the south. Um, but what we see is the politically independent states, member states of the ECCB, passing in passing those laws and bringing those laws into effect. So we see Grenada passing it in 2021, um, St. Vincent passing it in 2022, um, Antigua passing it in 2020, I believe, um, St. Kitts and Nevis in 2021, and bringing it into effect more or commencing that law more or less immediately. They're now into their second amendment, I believe, um, mm -hmm. So, so if I'm following you correctly, Cayman was the, the leader. They were the first jurisdiction in the Caribbean to, to come out with something. Of some yes. Sort of yes. And interestingly, BVI has not yet passed um, mm -hmm. a primary piece of legislation. They've circulated a draft bill, which I can share on screen if, if desired. Um, they've circulated a, a draft bill uh, for consultation to in to industry, uh, but what they've done as a stopgap measure is amended their anti-money laundering law as at December of last year. So December 2022, they've amended the anti-money laundering law, um, making any virtual asset service provider they will need to maintain client identification proceeding pr procedures. Sorry. Um, keeping KYC, suspicious transactions. They need to have internal reporting procedures for suspicious transactions. The usual suite of things that um, a financial um, entity would have to do. But most interestingly um, is that in the BVI, as at December of 2022, any virtual asset service provider will be required to comply with the travel rule and the travel rule means that any transfer, so the originating and beneficiary 
um, virtual asset service providers, you'll need to obtain, verify, and maintain complete information on the on that particular transfer. And intermediaries, you also have obligations to do that to show inflow outflow. Okay, but does, does, it, does, does it also include like audit requirements? So, for example, the, the firm needs to be audited by a recognized practitioner, anything like that? Um, not, not explicitly, but generally. So when I say generally, um, because you have your on an obligation to maintain accurate accounting records for a minimum of seven years or so, mm -hmm. um, your registered agent would be under duty um, to, to ensure that they have either with them a complete set of records or at your registered office or at your place of business um, or even in electronic format, a complete set of um, accounts, um, which can be inspected by the, equiv the local equivalent of the financial intelligence unit or the offshore regulator. So in any event, that I think um, brings you within school to be inspected at the very least. Hmm. Well, okay, so in 2018, 2019, 2020, when these uh, the, the regulators in the various jurisdictions were having a look at this, Everything was theoretical, right? So I guess they were looking at what's going on in the UK or perhaps to a lesser extent, US or whatever. And the discussions happening there, they got in their consultants, as you said, and they drafted what they hoped to be some sort of regulatory framework. But everything was theoretical. Now suddenly, as at the end of 2022, and as we having this conversation in early 2023, is no longer theoretical, it's real. And if we were to look at what happened in the Bahamas, I know we're not discussing the Bahamas, but it's obviously it's within sphere being in the Caribbean. And if we were to transpose it and to say that FTX or an entity like it were to have been located in one of the other jurisdictions which now have that regulatory framework, would it have been able to be caught? And it seems as if, and correct me if I'm wrong, the answer is definitely no, for two reasons. One, they, it's, it's not treated in the way like a, like a security would be in other jurisdictions where it would be subject to rigorous disclosure uh, and audit requirements. That's the first thing. And then the second thing, I guess, when you mentioned that consultants had to be called in, the question is, do the local, the domestic uh, financial services oversight bodies, do they have the, the skill set in-house in order to understand really what's going on far less uh, impose or enforce any governance requirement? Well, I think that's a very broad question. Um, and I yeah. think um, <laughs> I'll answer it this way. Yeah. Um, because crypto to doesn't necessarily display all the features of a security. Um, there's often the, the, the desire, the market desire to, to not have a heavy hand in regulation. So for example, if we cast our mind back to, um, there was a report from IOSCO, I-O-S-C-O, which um, is 
is it's called the Investor Education on Crypto Assets, and that was published on the 23rd of December 2020. Um, they identify, uh, and they and IOSCO is the general securities body. They identify um, risks within the crypto asset market, being market liquidity, volatility, partial or total loss of the invested amount, insufficient information disclosure, and fraud, and their way of seeing a, a resolution or solution to that would be um, for member states to develop educational content, inform the public about unlicensed or fraudulent firms, to use a variety of communication channels, et cetera. But that is all broad. It doesn't make granular recommendations as to how to achieve uh, consumer protection. Um, and, I, and I think it, it, it goes back to an almost primal, how do you regulate human nature really? Um, the, the, the wish to, to get rich quick, balanced against the, the risk or the need to protect um, one's financial interests. Um, and I think more to your point, about the capacity of Caribbean regulators. I do think there's capacity. Um, however, even on, on a good day, onshore regulators aren't able to necessarily uh, have a microscope to the activities of, of large um, crypto asset exchange platforms. So take, for instance, um, Binance. Binance is, is a Cayman domiciled exchange. It's one of the world's largest. Um, however, the FCA in the UK would have, from time to time, imposed uh, withdrawal bans in the United Kingdom, um, stop notices, required uh, more information or other assurances to be given. Um, as a regulatory response, um, that has been mirrored in um, Cayman, um, that has been mirrored in St. Vincent, um, that has been mirrored in, if memory serves, uh, the BVI, uh, where the regulators in each of those islands, um, upon a complaint, a substantiated complaint from a consumer client um, have made changes or have made um, regulatory responses to the activity of a particular um, crypto exchange or a crypto trader. So I think that that broadly, I think, answers your question in terms of capacity. I mean, there's always a need for more technical capacity, um, but really and truly, there isn't much that can be done, even in onshore jurisdictions, to to control um, the actions of or, or the ramifications of a crypto exchange um, acting in a particular manner. So, so you, I, I guess you can probably guess where I'm going with this. I mean, within recent memory alone, we've had 2016 the Panama Papers, 2017 the Paradise Papers, 2021 Pandora Papers. So the Caribbean as an offshore jurisdiction as a whole. I know that they're, they're very different in independent jurisdictions, but in the mind of uh, 
of other geographies, they see it as one amorphous space. Yeah. And, and it, the, the, the impact on reputation has been severe, has, has been incredibly severe. And one can argue that it doesn't show any, any signs of, of, of turning around itself. Because even though, you know, I just noticed that in the, in the, in the press coverage of the FTX situation, and again, I don't want to cast aspersions because it's, it's subject to review and, you know, there's an independent investigation and so on going, for, going on, but there is a sense that things weren't quite correct. And as part of that reporting, they never failed to mention that he was in the Caribbean. And as if, as if somehow being located in the Caribbean made, created a predisposition for irregularities. You know, the, why, why wasn't he on shore? He's American, his team, his leadership team, all American. Why didn't they come on shore? They went to the Caribbean for a reason. Mm. And, yeah, and it just seems, and, and, some, and some parts of the Caribbean uh, have been damaged irreparably. I think... And again, I'm not casting his prisons, just anecdotally, of, of course, thinking of like Belize and Panama as a jurisdiction. Yes, you can you can create entities, but good luck in finding a reputable bank willing to deal with them. And that that contagion uh, is, you know, I guess as someone with an interest in jurisdiction, it just seems to me cause for concern. <clears throat> and if it is, Okay, so their regulation is relatively fresh on the books. And looking at it, it we know, I mean, we don't know, but we can speculate that it has no teeth in the sense that it would not prevent something like that from recurring. Then, yeah, it, it, it doesn't look good. And when I was on a call yesterday, uh, another one of these, and we were discussing other jurisdictions, and we note the the ascent of the United Arab Emirates. And they had similar reputational challenges. They were on a blacklist. I think they're still maybe on a gray list, depending on which gray list you're looking at. But but they seem to be taking decisive steps to turn it around. Uh, You know, the oversight, even in the free zones, you, there's some reporting required all of a sudden, whereas historically there wasn't. Uh, that 9%, the 9% corporate tax, I think. Yeah. The 9% corporate means that they're playing ball. They're, you know, they're, they're listening to what they're being told by, by OECD countries and banking because it, it's like a pairing, right? Uh, like, like, uh, like wine and your meal. You, you need to pair them together. And entity formation and banking are inextricably, inextricably linked, I'm sorry. And I note that the UAE banks are, they're perhaps overreacting, but they are trying hard to get their act together and, and to be you know, more mindful of the type of clients they're onboarding and so on. Now that stands in sharp contrast, and I'm, I'm sorry to draw the comparison, but I do think it's relevant. It stands in sharp contrast to what's going on in the Caribbean. There's been reputational slippage over the past few years. And then in tandem with that, we've seen press coverage of the exodus of banks, at least from the English speaking Caribbean, which is what we're talking about. So mainly uh, Canadian banks, uh, 
and you know Scotiabank, Commerce, Royal Bank, they are heading in the opposite direction rather than investing in woods. They are packing up shop, doing fire sales, and they're running for the hills. So uh, yes, there's regulation, I, and so I've said all that. There's context, right? So yes, there's regulation, but uh, I, I, I don't mean to be too contentious, but how useful would this regulation be if the intent is to nurture and grow a struggling offshore uh, financial services center? Well, I think firstly, and, and maybe putting my, my, my pride aside as a Caribbean practitioner, um, I would agree there has been some reputational slippage, but what I don't agree is with the the, the legal arbitrage that has arisen. I've been in practice now ten years, and what I what I can see comparatively between offshore and onshore is that the Caribbean is really a, a well regulated and well run um, set of jurisdictions. So, take for example the BVI. Um, the BVI has the boss system or the beneficial ownership search system, which is disclosable only to um, authorized persons. And that sort of thing is replicated um, throughout the Eastern Caribbean. Um, in St. Vincent in particular, you are not able to get information on, a, on the beneficial ownership of companies unless um, that information is requested either by court order or by um, an authorized law enforcement authority. Um, so we have moved away from being the traditional secrecy jurisdictions to one-off, um, I would say, benevolent privacy. Um, and I think that is a fact that is not um, trumpeted more. Um, a lot of these assumptions and a lot of these um, what I would term aspersions against Caribbean jurisdictions are not grounded in much fact. Um, what it is grounded in, in is feeling. This is very emotive to say, oh, a billionaire is using a Caribbean jurisdiction to stash money away. And that's taking money away from hospitals and the rebuilding of roads and the feeding of small children in remote parts of an onshore country. Um, sympathetic as that argument may be, it's not bear, borne out on the facts. And um, the many different, uh, more esteemed practitioners than I am, um, especially there's a chap in the BVI um, who's of Canadian extraction, and, and he has for the past, I think, 20 years or so, I've been following his, his writings. Um, he has been consistent in demonstrating that the... the drum that most of these NGOs are banging is simply hollow. And it is hollow because of the type of regulation and the type of capacity that exists on island. And that is something that is demonstrated in CFATF reports, FATF reports, OECD reports. Um, but what it, but, but <laughs> conversely, the EU doesn't seem to have that position and the EU COG um, seems to, to have a position that is purely political as opposed to empirical. And to, to come home to the crypto point, 
um, the feelings of a particular exchange as a result of the actions or the nefarious actions of a set of individuals. Fraud is fraud. Um, that is individual responsibility. That is the misuse of the corporate form. Um, that is a deliberate crime. Now, you may say, well, why the Caribbean as opposed to elsewhere? Um, but that doesn't, that's not an empirical answer in my view, because in the Caribbean, you have had maybe what, two or three um, crypto exchanges failing versus um, crypto exchanges failing in the US, um, in the UK, um, elsewhere in the Commonwealth world. Um, like yeah. yeah, I mean, financial failure is not something that is unique to the Caribbean. Um, financial fraud is not something that is unique to the Caribbean. Um, what seems to be unique is the type of press coverage. Um, what seems to be unique is the lack of a thorough investigative approach. And what seems to be unique is the description of the investigations and the outcome of those investigations by um, leading, <laughs> leading newspapers and leading um, commentators. Um, look, let's get down, let's be frank. You come to the Caribbean because you want light touch regulation. You want the benefit of the climate and the location, and you want that cool factor. There's a reason why you come to the, and the Caribbean has been at the center of international finance and commerce um, since the days of slavery. That's how the Czech start got its popularity, the Bill of Sale, Lloyds of London, that's how they all got their popularity um, through the use of the Caribbean. So we're not um, a newcomer to international finance, um, but what we have been known for is the ability to stick to the rule of law. And that rankles certain, um, I would say, I, I would say left wing, but this is the political show. Uh, but um, it, 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 it disturbs certain, um, certain sectors of um, non-Caribbean society. Okay, uh, fair enough, fair point. So, we are where we are and uh, even though the actual you know the the actual management and control of these entities of well the ftx was kind of like an exception they tend to be elsewhere they this the structures do take advantage of of, of what you of what you've said what the caribbean has to offer that light touch and that's that has its pros and that has its cons. Indeed. So, so we, we have this regulation and it will it will do what it, it does, which will continue the, the, the philosophy of being light touch uh, as we and, go forward. And, and 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 I think let's let's not let's take the view that legislation is not fixed in stone. So I mean look, the BVI has circulated a draft bill. It's now for industry to comment on that and then to have a finalized version which will be brought into effect. 
the AML set of laws have already been amended as of December 2022. Now let's look at St. Kitts and Nevis. They passed their Virtual Assets Act and brought it into um, effect in 2020, but they have already amended that twice. Right, the last time being um, 2021, and that was to um, streamline um, what are virtual assets, what are the reporting requirements for a virtual asset service provider in respect of AML CFT, because it wasn't clear. So it, this legislation is not set in in stone, and I think that it's a it, it's a testament um, to our legislative responses. I mean. I would critique most of the Caribbean as being slow in terms of um, legislative responses. But uh, the, the point being that there is a response that can be made um, where there is risk. And that's why the FATF um, has labeled any legislative response to be risk-based. Now, naturally, as a result of FTX, that risk is now going to be heightened um, but that is why every two years or so there's a round of evaluations by the FATF, whereby the, the, the local authorities for each island um, are evaluated and um, can raise or lower um, legislative responses um, if necessary. Okay. So, so there are a range of things that can be done and will be done in respect of the handling of crypto, the treatment of, of crypto assets. Um, it crypto. I think as we've spoken privately, crypto is a is a leveler um, mm -hmm. at the legislative level and even at the practitioner level because it's something completely new. It it resembles the old in that um, the indicia of what it means to be property, um, it, what it means to be sorry, what it means to be property, um, what what. How can it be held? Um, is it a solid? Is it a gas? That kind of thing. Um, but the the common law, the strength of the common law has shown through, um, and there's a there are a wide range of things that you one can do as an individual, um, either at the regulatory level um, or at the litigation level if you want a, a remedy. Hmm. So I have a question that follows from that. Uh, each of each of these jurisdictions in question have approached it in their own way. So what distinguishes one jurisdiction from another? So for example, if someone is an entrepreneur or a trader or they want to set up an exchange or, or whatever it may be, why should they choose one jurisdiction over the other? So for example, in, in Dubai, in the Emirates, sorry, all in, you probably have like 45 free zones, but you know that certain free zones are good for this. If I wanted to set up this type of project, this is a free zone I need to go to. If I want this type of structure, I need to go to the other and, and so on and so forth. Is there any such distinction within the, these Caribbean jurisdictions? Um, I would think not really and I, and I explain why so for example um the the distinction would come from not necessarily legislative response because the, the laws are broadly identical anyway um Cayman, bvi um the the model eastern caribbean central bank um bill 
they all have a common um, definition of what a digital, um, what what a virtual asset is, being a digital representation of value that can be digitally traded or transfers and can be used for payment or investment purposes, but does not include digital representation of fiat currencies or a digital record of a credit against a financial institute of fiat currency. So that excludes CBDCs. Um, so for example, in the Eastern Caribbean, you have um, Dcash, which is digital cash, which is a digital representation of the Eastern Caribbean dollar. Or in the Bahamas, you have the sand dollar um, and so on and so forth. Um, so, so broadly, they have the same definition. They cover the same things. So virtual asset service provider, VASP, uh, that's a common acronym between Cayman and the BVI. Um, and it's a VAA, I think, virtual asset, um, VAP, I think, in, in the Eastern Caribbean. Uh, so, so they're broadly similar. So the differences come in terms of what exactly is the aim of the person who is setting up a virtual asset service provider. So for example, Cayman and BVI, you initially brand name value. So Cayman and BVI have the largest amount of ancillary support services um, in the Caribbean offshore world. Um, Cayman, you have the big six or so big firms that also span Bermuda, um, London, Singapore, Hong Kong, and the BVI themselves. So you have the big law firms um, and the brand name value of Cayman and BVI. But if you're looking to be more off the off, off the books, or I mean, let me not say off the books, <laughs> see that I already said fraud, but off the beaten path, uh, you have the, the, the more, um, I would say, the more gem-like or the more pearl-like um, jurisdictions, St. Vincent, St. Kitts and Nevis, um, that are smaller, um, it, you, you tend to find more traders, you tend to find much more traders in these jurisdictions as opposed to crypto exchange platforms which are bigger and would require naturally something of a more brand name. So, uh, so I think that's a, that's a central difference. As to the effect of the regulation, um, what I've noticed is that Nevis in particular um, Nevis has a very high fee. I think it's something like 55,000 Eastern Caribbean dollars for the application fee and like a hundred and something thousand for the license. Um, St. Vincent has not yet commenced um, its application of the Virtual Assets Act. So we don't really know what the, the application fees are like. Um, Antigua is roughly the, roughly the same. So it's roughly about maybe what's that conversion like? About twenty five thousand, what twenty five thousand US? Um, so less than what's Bitcoin at now? That's like one point five bitcoins uh, for the application fee, and maybe uh, maybe roughly about nine bitcoins for for an annual license. So you know, it, it it's it's not that unmanageable for 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 a successful trader depending on the market being not notwithstanding its volatility um 
but there are opportunities for for the discerning trader um and of course consumer protection what a big aspect of the regulation is about is, is about consumer protection and you could only get your license under the act if you provide a prospectus details of dispute resolution mechanisms um, and of course there's also a statutory bond so in the eastern caribbean there's also a statutory bond so in the event that the trade or the corporate entity goes bust there is at least some money um, available um, to go out in a in a liquidation um, so, so so the state isn't left high and dry so to speak so for example in St. Vincent that statutory bond is a hundred thousand um, Eastern Caribbean dollars which is about 50,000 US um, so that's that's just held in escrow by the state um, and you get that back when you wind up your business so, so there are a range of things um, that the legislation provides for, which I think um, are a useful response um, to the more shady side of, of the crypto asset world. So maybe let's just signpost and say the treatment of crypto assets in the Eastern Caribbean and the broader Caribbean is that, uh, well, it's recognized, um, it's regulated, um, and it's used and it's a matter of an individual taking um, legal advice um, which would be tailored to their particular instances to understand the pros and cons for them okay all, all, all fair and good uh this perfection doesn't exist there's no situation that is perfect anywhere but at least concrete and decisive steps have been taken and, and continue to be taken because as you said it's not static so yeah. steps continue to be taken to provide the the protection and regulation that that is obviously quite needed i think maybe going back to our earlier point on um amendments to to the laws what I think industry is looking at, at least for two clients who have, who have advised, um, the U European Union is coming out with a markets and crypto assets regulation, MECA, um, and they've published a lot of documentation on that. And just, just to show the, the parallel between the EU and the Caribbean at the moment, now MECA defines a crypto asset as a digital representation of value or rights which may be transferred and stored electronically using distributed ledger technology or similar technology. Now that's almost parallel to what um, the Eastern Caribbean Central Bank's model legislation has. That's almost parallel to what the draft BVI legislation is. And it's almost identical to what the Cayman law is. So what I think EU regulation and EU case law are really going to be um, looked at because there's more volume in the EU to be frank there are more people in Luxembourg and um, Estonia um, France um, Switzerland etc who actually in interface more with crypto than in the Caribbean by my count at least so that sort of regulation and re regulatory responses to 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 that particular set of affairs um, I think is going to um, impact 
on any likely amendment to practice and or procedure um, in the Eastern Caribbean. Okay, all good. Uh, I, I think these are all good, but you know, my, my original concerns remain about the reputational risk and especially in light of what happened recently. I, I know that obviously, as you, as you pointed out, other jurisdictions have, have had uh, other controversies as well, but somehow because of uh, the, the, the unique history of the Caribbean, things are being painted in, in a different way. And, uh, and hopefully this would mark the beginning of uh, a step change, but, but, but we'll see. Uh, I'm looking for any questions and I'm not seeing any questions either here or on Facebook. So anything on LinkedIn? Uh, no, nothing on LinkedIn either. So what, any parting remarks as we wrap up? I think um, apart from fraud, Mm. The biggest area of concern would be insolvency. Mm. And, um, you know, when an exchange collapses, what happens? Mm -hmm. um, so, for example, Cryptopia, the Cryptopia set of um, claims in New Zealand, um, where New Zealand High Court, if memory serves, held that cryptocurrencies were property held on trust for the depositors and were not available for distribution to unsecured creditors generally. Um, so there, there would be disputes there, uh, but that has already been addressed in the Eastern Caribbean. And there's a case called, I think I would have written um, for HTJ tax in respect of this, the Philip Smith and Jason Kardachi, joint liquidators of talk group holdings. And in that case, um, Justice Wallbank uh, more or less held that crypto assets are to be assets, um, are to be considered as assets for the purposes of liquidation. Because when an exchange collapses, there isn't going to be much fiat. What's going to be, they're going to have a lot of wallets with public addresses that hold the proceeds. Uh, and those wallets could be accessed by private keys. Um, so what, what, what Justice Wallbank held in that case, and that's at uh, paragraph 30 to 32, and I'd read, now applying the analysis, and this is Justice Wallbank speaking, employed by the United Kingdom Judicial Task Force, this would indicate that the crypto assets in the user trading wallet are assets of the company within the estate. In giving this indication, it will be open to any stakeholder with an interest in the user trading wallets to seek to have this court come to an alternative conclusion. By contrast, the user personal wallets did not involve users transferring crypto assets to wallets that were controlled by or that belonged to the company. The provision of the user personal wallets was a separate service offered by the company to its users. The users utilize the company's platform as a hosting service, and the company would not have access to a knowledge of the private key, despite the private key being generated by the company's platform. I find it likely that the owners of the crypto assets within the personal user wallets is or are the individual users. 
So basically, what, what Justice Wallbank is saying that look, this exchange, you have user trading and a user personal. What's in the user trading that could be split up, used by the estate, insolvent estate? What's in the personal because the company didn't have any direct knowledge of what was in there that's to be out so this demonstrates the ability of the eastern caribbean supreme court bvi division and by and by by analogy because it's one court but with each circuit but the judges rotate um, and of course each of the member states and territories have access to the commercial division uh, what this demonstrates is that our courts as a leading common law court can give remedies in insolvency to those exchanges that may go bust to individuals who may have um, issues with or th that require remedies um, under the common law to an exchange or against an exchange or to a trader or against a trader so i think apart from fraud insolvency would be the big uh, would be the big kahuna, so to speak, um, going forward over the next year or so. Um, and finally, consumer protection. Now, in St. Vincent and the Grenadines, we have seen a, a lot of complaints against um, LLCs and IBCs or BCs, as they're now known, um, who engage in trading. And there isn't much recourse apart from getting a judgment against them in the high court. But once the Virtual Assets Act comes on stream or is commenced, because it's already passed, um, and those exchanges or traders are regulated because of the prospectus that they would have to give and because of the statutory bond etc there is a greater chance of a remedy um, to a consumer of that entity and i think those two latter the insolvency and the consumer protection i think those two things are going to be the great benefits uh, as a result of the regulatory responses to crypto um, across the Eastern Caribbean and further in the Commonwealth Caribbean. But hey, take advice, take legal advice, and of course, take proper accounting and structuring advice um, from you know who. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, I wish, I wish, I wish all well. It's a new and exciting time in the common law world. Um, and of course, it's thrown up some very curious um accounting issues especially in transfer pricing etc that i know i'd leave that in your capable hands and i'll hand <laughs> the Mikael, thank you very much for your candid and insightful uh exploration uh, what is a, 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 it is controversial it is topical but it is necessary thank you very much and thank you for those who have joined us on the various streaming platforms uh, we appreciate your time. Feel free to reach out to us at htj.tax should you have any questions, comments, or ideas. Thank you very much. See you next time. So if you're a six, seven, or eight-figure investor, entrepreneur, or business owner who needs a tailor-made solution from a qualified team of professionals, we can help you achieve the international lifestyle, the freedom, and even the tax savings you're looking for. Visit us at htj.tax 
and live that international life.